The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our scripture text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul speaking very autobiographical and personally here. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. Speaking about his calling into ministry and God's grace to him. Let us hear God's word. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In London in the 1920s, there was a young man who was at the top of the medical profession in England. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a brilliant medical student who had studied under the very best medical minds and was set to embark on what everyone thought would be an illustrious medical career. But that was not to be the case, and Lloyd-Jones would end up becoming a pastor. A shocking change of direction for many who knew his medical potential, but during his medical school experience, he was converted to faith in Christ. And in those early years of his newfound faith, he tells of going to a Christmas Eve party at one time. Now, remember, this is England in the 1920s, still a very religious country. Everybody went to church almost. Everybody was a, quote, Christian. Newspapers published sermons regularly by all the well-respected minister in any community. So at this party... As everyone is sitting around talking, Lloyd-Jones gets everyone's attention and asks this question, why did Jesus Christ come? And everyone, of course, is initially a little bit in a little bit of a stunned silence that he would interrupt and kind of ask this, but then some of the bolder ones there begin to attempt an answer. Well, Jesus Christ came to be our, our example, or... Someone else said, well, Jesus Christ came to demonstrate love. And so the answers went, none of them showing a true understanding of mankind's terrible plight and condition of being alienated and separated from God because of sin and needing 
Jesus Christ to come and to die for their sins, to save them by his work, to redeem them, because they can never save themselves. And the Bible's call to trust Jesus Christ and his cross. So at the party, when everyone else had given their answers, Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke briefly about what the Bible taught about why Jesus Christ came. And many who were there reacted as if they had never heard these things. And maybe they hadn't. Interesting how you can live in a religious society and not hear or understand the gospel. Verse 15 of our text says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds those interesting words, of whom I am the worst. That's a statement that really cuts across the grain of our contemporary culture and mindset doesn't it? The idea of people being sinners, the idea of people needing to be saved, the fact that Paul would describe himself as the worst of sinners, many in our society would hear that statement and think, Paul, here's someone who's definitely gone overboard with religion. Here's someone who needs to get some therapy. Maybe you need to get in touch with your inner self, Paul, and start loving yourself. Or something like that. Maybe he needs to sort out some Freudian id and ego issue, issues from his childhood. But Paul is actually speaking gospel truth here. He's telling God's truth about why Jesus Christ came. And he's speaking very passionately and personally about his experience of the grace of God shown to him in Jesus Christ. I want us to look at our passage under three main points. The first is this. The message of Christmas is Christ Jesus came to save sinners. That's what verse 15 is saying. And that's the gospel message, the message that Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Let's break that statement up into its part. Christ Jesus. Notice it's not like Jesus Christ and Christ is just his last name. That's not what it means. Christ means Messiah. So, The Messiah Jesus, Messiah literally meaning the anointed one, the one anointed by God with the power of the Spirit to come, the one prophesied and predicted throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who would bear transgressions and sins, the sacrificial lamb that all the sacrificial ceremonies pointed and foreshadowed, the long-awaited Emmanuel, God with us the eternal Son of God. This Christ Jesus came into the world. And Paul is clearly speaking of Jesus taking on human flesh, what we call the incarnation, the enfleshment of Christ, you might say. The virgin birth is a teaching that the Bible clearly affirms. Jesus was conceived by the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit In the Virgin Mary. So Jesus was born without a human father. The angel tells Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Or in Luke 1, we likewise hear when the angel appears to Mary, he tells her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
This is the amazing mystery of Christ Jesus coming into this world. Charles Colson, the Watergate hatchet man that many people know about in the Nixon administration who ended up in prison for some of his actions and in prison came to know Christ. A few years ago when the movie The Matrix came out, Colson wrote an article about how this movie was a great illustration of Jesus Christ coming into the world. In the movie, you find that almost all human beings on the earth in this futuristic time are controlled by computer-like machines. And to maintain their control, these evil machines have all the humans in this semi-sleep state, encapsulated in some kind of shells and hooked up to a giant computer program called The Matrix. And the interesting thing about The Matrix is that everyone is living in what they think is a normal life. They're going about their jobs, they're having families, they're eating and all these kinds of things, but it's all really an illusion. It's an oppressive way to keep humans enslaved. And the movie is about this little group of free human beings and one in particular who choose to enter the matrix to set people free. Colson says that's an analogy for what Jesus did entering our world. He had to leave his heavenly glory and enter this sin-cursed, fallen world, this world in which people are enslaved, but they don't realize it. It's like they're in the matrix. And Jesus came to set us free from our bondage and sin. And so we come to the end of that phrase in verse 15, he came to save sinners. Many people have the idea that being saved is really only needed by someone on skid row, someone whose irresponsible behavior has, you know, ruined his life completely and landed him in like a Water Street rescue mission. And so people like that need to be saved, we might hold to. But being saved wouldn't be for someone respectable, someone reasonably moral, someone who comes to church once in a while at least or holds a good job and raises his family with good morals and maybe gives some money to charity once in a while. A person like that, we would think, maybe wouldn't need to be saved. But Scripture says just the opposite. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That verse is talking about the fact that even if we're living respectable lives, the way the world looks at us, we still fall woefully short of the glory of God because of our sin. And each and every one of us need the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. We need to be saved. We need this justification, this redemption that came by Jesus Christ to save us from the penalty of sin, to save us from the eternal justice and judgment of God, to be saved, to enjoy communion with God and fellowship with God and even adoption as a child of God and a co-heir of Christ, to be saved, to glorify and enjoy God forever. That's what Jesus Christ came to bring about. Or as it says in the great hymn, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And then the verse goes on, he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found in this cursed 
fallen world, Jesus enters this world and dramatically brings salvation to those who will trust in him. The message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. But secondly, from our text, we see this. The message of Christmas is absolute truth. The gospel is absolute truth. Notice how Paul introduces what he says in verse 15 with this uh, statement, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Why does he use these introductory words? Now, we know that all Scripture is true and inspired by God, and all Scripture is to be received as the very words of God. But every once in a while, you find statements like this that highlight the fact that what is being said is absolutely true. Maybe some of you children still do this, but I hope you don't use the phrases that we use. But when I was young, we had little sayings to verify to our friends that what we were telling them was true. And you especially might use a phrase like this if, you know, your friends weren't believing what you were saying. So, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. You know, that would be what you'd say before you'd say some preposterous thing that they might not believe. None of us, I don't think, ever thought about actually doing the gruesome kind of activity being described there, but that's the kind of thing we see here, but Paul is doing it in a good, solemn way, not a childish kind of way. And he's saying, listen to me. This is God's truth. Here is a trustworthy saying. Well, why does Paul do that here? Probably because he knows that one of the very first truths that comes under assault by an unbelieving world is the person of Jesus Christ and his work to redeem us. That's one of the very first things that when the church starts to depart from Scripture and the truth of God, the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is goes by the wayside. That he came, that he is truly the God-man come in the flesh, and that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, and that he came to save sinners. That quickly gets thrown by the wayside. The world is happy, you see, with a form of Christianity that simply teaches good and nice morals, that tells people, I'm okay, you're okay, and God is okay with everyone. Just try to do some good and be kind, and everything will be okay with God. The world is happy with religions that teach self-effort and self-improvement as the way to God and heaven. That's the philosophy, in fact, that's at the heart of every other religion except for biblical Christianity. And the world is fine with it because it empties Jesus Christ of his glory and his uniqueness and his deity, his godness. It subtracts all that from Christ and exalts human beings and what they can do. Maybe in the back of your mind, you think to yourself, well, all religions do some good, and all roads eventually lead to the same place. But don't you see from what Paul is saying here that Scripture stands diametrically opposed to that line of thought? No, Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying. In other words, listen, this is true. Let all your thinking be judged by God's Word. In our modern mindset, that's, that's opposite to what most of the world around you might be thinking and saying. You know, this is hard for us 21st century people to face, isn't it? 
one of the overriding characteristics of our age is really being anti-authority. We don't naturally like authority. We question authority. We distrust authority. The government does something, and we read about it on the front page, and we right away say, oh, I don't know what they're up to. I don't trust them, and maybe rightly so at times. And in some ways, that's good. Yes. We read about the Boston Tea Party, for example, and we naturally identify with the Americans, tossing the tea off over the sides of the boat, right? They were right to pour that tea in the Boston Harbor. No taxation without representation. And that's good old American independent thinking, isn't it? Well, there's a place for that, but when it comes to our relationship to God, do you see that our anti-authority bent can quickly lead us astray because it's so easy for the modern mind to set itself up against the truth of God and act as a judge of God's word. And we say to ourselves somehow, I will decide what is true and what's not true. Or especially, as in the the case with a lot of young folks these days, I don't think there is such a thing as absolute truth. It's a very convenient philosophical stance to take. That means that you can believe whatever you like and do whatever you do and have any kind of lifestyle you want, and you can justify it all by saying, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. In fact, I don't believe there is any absolute truth. You see how that's contradicting the Word of God here. God says otherwise. God's Word says otherwise. This is a trustworthy saying. This is true. There is absolute truth. Think of the question this way. Did Jesus Christ really come in history? Did he really live? Did he really die on the cross? Did he really rise from the dead? Was he who he says he was? You see, if you think of it this way, there's no middle ground. There's no, that's true for you and this is true for me. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then what he said is true. And he was who he says he was. Because no one else has risen from the dead And if he truly came and died and rose, then God's word is true because Jesus said it was true. And then you have to ask yourself, where does that leave me in relationship to God and his truth? You might need to do some serious rethinking of your heart and your life. And that brings us to the third main point that I want us to see. The message of Christmas must be received by believing in Jesus Christ. The message, the good news, must be believing in Jesus Christ. You must respond in faith. This is where we come to look at how personal and how biographical Paul gets here. Notice he ends verse 15 by saying, of whom I am the worst, the worst sinner. And he repeats this later down in verse 16. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example. We read this and we might ask ourselves, is Paul acting with some kind of a feigned humility here? After all, this is the great apostle, the one who did so much for the cause of Christ. You can read in 2 Corinthians all the beatings and floggings and shipwreckings and all these things that Paul went through. Is he just putting on a false humility here? No. Notice two things about what Paul says in terms of the awareness of his sin. First of all, Look how he remembers his deep hostility to the gospel before he came to believe. Verses 12 through 14 
express this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Then in verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Wow, what a description of the apostle. He's giving this of himself. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What a description of Paul's past life. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, before the risen Jesus Christ appeared to me on the Damascus road, he's saying, I was about as opposed to the gospel as you can get. I was zealously persecuting Christians. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. It's interesting how Luke records in Acts chapter 9 that Paul at this point, he goes by the name Saul. There he is, in in Luke's words, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. You just see Paul just intent on finding every Christian and rounding them up and putting them in prison or putting them to death. Luke says he gets letters from the high priest in Jerusalem so that if he, he could go to D- Damascus, about 150 miles away, seven days' journey in that time. That was no obstacle for, for Paul. He'll go there. If he found any there who belonged to the way, Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jer- Jerusalem. Here's a man, powerful, determined, even hateful, we would say, an enemy of the gospel, who thought he was serving God. It was done out of zeal for God. We read about the Inquisition in the time of the Reformation, and Paul would have fit in very well as an inquisitor, wouldn't he have? Just uh, anyone who professed faith in Christ, get him. But he goes on to say he did it in ignorance. That is not to say Paul was denying he was guilty or responsible for what he did, but he's saying that he had no idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Then the risen Lord appeared to him and everything changed. It would have never crossed his mind. So there's this undeserved mercy. Jesus Christ pours out his grace on Saul. He appears to him and speaks to him, and Saul is wonderfully converted. And he can use this phrase, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. It's interesting, that verse 14 is the verse that John Bunyan, the author of the famous book Pilgrim's Progress, used as the basis for his life story, his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. How would you like to entitle your life story that way? That's what Bunyan did, because Bunyan was right there with Paul, willing to say, I am the worst, Lord. And that brings us to the second thing to notice about Paul's statement about himself being the worst. Notice he uses the present tense. He doesn't say, of whom I was the worst, but of whom I am the worst. In other words, Paul is not just talking about his life before Christ. He's also very aware of his remaining sin now. Even after years of knowing Christ and serving Christ, really he's at the end of his apostleship now. It's not long until he dies. And Paul can say he is the worst because he knows his own heart and his own sin better than anyone else. He's not quick to judge the motives of everybody else's hearts, but he is quick to know his own heart and to see his own sin. And Paul knows that he is always 
a sinner saved by grace alone. And so he says in verse 16 that he's an example of the unlimited patience of Jesus Christ for those who would believe on Christ, on him, and receive eternal life. That's the way to receive this message. And Paul says, my life is an example of this to everyone, of the unlimited patience of Jesus Christ. An example of a sinner seeing his desperate need and casting himself wholly on Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to receive this good news? It means to see the complete hopelessness of anything you might try to do to save yourself. Any good works, any morality, any religion, anything like that, that you would hold up to God and say, accept me because I'm good enough, and instead to trust Jesus Christ alone, to repent of sin and to turn to him. Thomas Bilney was one of the famous early Reformation leaders in England in the 1500s. He was one of a group of theologians who met at the famous White Horse Inn, some of you may know about that, which stood on what is now the corner of King's Parade and Rose Crescent in Cambridge. And this group prepared for the Reformation. They studied, they discussed. But in 1520, before he came to Christ, Bilney was a young law scholar at Cambridge and This was a young man who had no peace, neither through his studies nor through ordination. But then Bilney began to read the Latin translation of Erasmus' Greek New Testament. And this is where his testimony connects with our scripture text, because he describes his experience in these words. Listen to what he writes. He says, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul, in 1 Timothy 1. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. Building goes on. This one sentence through God's instruction and inward working did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. After this, the Scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey or the honeycomb. That's Bilney's testimony to the power of 1 Timothy 1.15 in his life. It's like the Bible, the promises of the gospel came alive, that if, if it's true for Paul, the worst, that it could be true for him too. And what a powerful testimony to the working of the Spirit of God through the Word of God to set a heart to believe in Jesus Christ and to receive true gospel peace. Bilney went out, as history tells it, and began preaching the gospel with power. His most famous convert was Hugh Latimer, who became the most prominent preacher of the English Reformation. And then finally in 1555 in Oxford, both Bilney and Latimer were burned at the stake for their faith in Christ. What a monumental effect 1 Timothy 1.15 has had. And I ask, well, what about you? What about your response? Has the coming of Jesus Christ into this world to save sinners changed your life? Do you know the peace that Bilney speaks about overflowing his heart? Have you lifted your heart up to God in prayer and say, Lord, I see my sin I see my, uh, that I only deserve judgment, but I also see that you sent Jesus Christ for sinners 
like me. Forgive me and give me new life for Christ's sake and let me be wholly yours. Is that the response that you have brought to this? Let me just speak two brief words of application. One is this. No matter how bad your sin, face it in the light of God's grace. No matter how bad or black your sin might be, some people are at times overwhelmed by a sense of worthlessness. Often this might be due to childhood issues of the way they were raised or maybe being victimized or abused or the way their parents dealt with them, and they always feel that they are worthless. And you might tend to think, well, my sin is just too bad for God to forgive. It may be true for this person or that one, but I'm too bad. I hope that you see from Paul that no one is too black for Christ to cleanse them of their sins. Sometimes Christians who have walked with God for years still wrestle with this sense of worthlessness and their sins overwhelming them. Take hold of the promise of God and don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at the promise of God. Look what he came to do. Keep battling by faith. And the key is to keep coming back to a focus on Jesus Christ and his good news. But secondly, let me just say this. An awareness of your sin and an experience of God's grace will lead to worship. Knowing your sin and facing your sin, and yet seeing it and facing it in the light of the gospel enables you to have true joy in all of life. It doesn't lead to a dour and woeful attitude. That's not the Apostle Paul. No, it leads to true and fundamental joy, the opposite of what the world might think Christians experience. Christians know true joy. Christians can say, thanks be to God, no matter what life brings, even in hardship. Look at how Paul concludes this section in verse 17. He breaks out in doxology. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul can't but help break out in praise to God. And if you have come to know God's grace in Christ, then your life is really rooted in a joy that can't be taken away. It's rooted in worship of the true God, even in the hardships, even in the griefs of this life, even in the heartaches that Christians experience in this life. You know the King eternal, and you will joy in him forever. You know, I was raised in the church, went to church every week. My parents even took me to Sunday school when, I was, when we went to the beach so I could get my 52-week prize, you know, for being there every, year, every week of the year. And all through my life, went to church, joined the church with the communicants class when it was time. But in my sophomore year at Dickinson College, I really came to understand the gospel for the first time. And I can still remember the fall of my sophomore year coming to Christmas services at Christmas time after really coming to know Christ for the first time in my life. And the difference that that made in my joy. I mean, I had stood there in the pew next to my dad for all those years and, you know, kind of sung the hymns, but I did, my heart was never in it. I, I just, you know, I, I knew we were supposed to sing at those times. But I remember going back home and singing the Christmas, the great hymns about Jesus Christ coming. And even, you know, even if I couldn't sing that well, to really enter into that with joy and worship because my life had been radically changed by the Savior, 
now I understood. It wasn't me trying to be good enough to please God. It was that God saved me and showed me mercy in Jesus Christ. And maybe there are some, there's someone here today who needs to receive the gospel through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners and to put that song of joy into a sinner's heart. Let us pray. Father, thank you for what Jesus did. Thank you that he was willing to come. It's unimaginable to us coming from heavenly glory to this sin-cursed world, and yet he did it out of love. The Father sent him out of love. Thank you for that amazing grace to us. We confess our sin is very dark, but the gospel is brighter and better and able to cleanse us. Thank you for Jesus and his amazing grace. May we rest in that this day and every day and throughout our lives until we see you face to face and every ounce of sin is eradicated from our lives. May we be joyful in Christ Jesus our Lord. Give us grace to so worship you. In Christ's name we pray.